Hey everybody, it's Ryan Smith with Thomas Brophy, and this is the ABI Multifamily Minute. We'll be coming at you with information and trends in the apartment market, including on and off market deal availability, as well as information and interviews with industry experts and investors. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. So Victor Minaj, thanks for being on the episode today. Um, you know, just a little bit of background. He's raised over three hundred million in capital for a wide range of projects, uh, ranging from developments, uh, venture capital, and corporate buyouts. And he's also the author of Magnetic Capital. Um, Victor, we we brought you in today so we could kind of pick your brain on the the side of raising capital. Um, you know, being the managing partner of the U.S. real estate partners, if you want to kind of talk about what you guys are working on now projects-wise um, from development and uh, acquisition. Oh, great to be here. Well, we've uh, we've been pretty active uh, in today's marketplace. What we found is that you know there's a lot of projects underway uh, nationwide. Uh, it's a bit of a feeding frenzy, and there's a lot of people paying uh, ridiculous prices uh, for existing assets. And uh, so we've elected to focus more on new development, new construction. We're finding that we can uh, create new projects from a blank sheet of paper, uh, create far more value than by buying existing assets on the market. And uh, so that's that's been our focus for the last couple of years. Now, I know you've been creative as far as uh, the product type you're developing. Um, you know, we've discussed kind of the infill stuff you've been working on, but uh, what's the vast, uh, I guess, expanse of, of different projects that you guys are developing? I would say that infill is really our specialty, uh, but it, it's really market dependent. So we're in a couple of different sub-markets, and uh, what works in one market doesn't necessarily work in another. So, for example, in Philadelphia, our focus overwhelmingly is infill development. Uh, we do land assembly where we can acquire you know, a handful of properties, put them together, and uh, now we've got a larger piece of property that we can actually work with. And if it's zoned uh, multi-unit residential, of course, then we can uh, we can go vertical and uh, and create some significant value that way. Other markets, we we always look for market fundamentals where there's tremendous growth, where there is a strong economic base, there's influx of population, influx of jobs, and when those fundamentals are present, uh, and there's you know a supply demand imbalance, meaning more demand than supply, then it obviously makes sense to build. Uh, and uh, we're very active right now uh, along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana. Uh, there's a lot of new infrastructure projects, uh, large natural gas and petrochemical projects going in, uh, and, of course, all of the population growth that goes with that. So th- those are really kind of the, the, the spectrum of what we're working on. And then, of course, there's some specialty projects, but but I'd say that's our bread and butter. Okay, okay. And – um, just from a, uh, I guess, looking at it from an investor standpoint, um, you know, when, when, when you're raising money for a development, uh, versus raising money for a, a property that already has, you know, cash flows in place or, um, something that maybe has a quicker turnaround, uh, right. You know, uh, even a repositioning project is probably done within 12 months or so. Um, are, are the investors that, you have that you're, you know, drawing in for these development deals different as far as where their goals are aligned um, than an investor that maybe would invest in a, a cash flowing property? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, every investor has their own goals and objectives. And um, so it's important to match the goals for the project with the goals for the money. If those don't match, then don't take the money. 
uh, oftentimes, you know, what I find rookie investors do is they, they say, well, I've got a great deal. I've got a great deal. You have money. Therefore, we should work together. And it's it's never that simple. Every person who has money is, you know, has a particular idea of how they should be investing it. And, you know, for, for example, one guy I have is only interested in short-term projects. I'm not going to give him a long-term buy and hold. doesn't make any sense. Conversely, I've got another guy who um, knows that when his money's sitting on the sidelines, it's earning zero. So he wants his money to work over an extended period of time. So I wouldn't give that person a six-month, uh, you know, buy, fix, and sell transaction. That wouldn't make sense either. Uh, so it's really matching the, the the goals for the money with the goals for the project. And and how do you go about um, you know when you're you're meeting these investors or finding these investors? Are you you know are you sitting down on the first cup of coffee and asking them you know how they want to invest or how are you going through the process of figuring out what their goals are? You know, seeing if they're going to align with the investments that you're working with. Well. What I find is that raising money, and I talk about this extensively in the book Magnetic Capital, really requires you to meet five different fundamentals. And when you achieve all five of those fundamentals, raising money is remarkably easy. If you have one or more of those elements missing, then raising money gets tremendously, tremendously difficult. So it really starts with the first principle, which is that of relationship. And, um, you know, relationship is, is just that it's relationship. It's not about money. It's not about doing business together. It starts with a genuine core of relationship at its foundation. And, and, you know, if I'm developing a relationship with somebody, I'm probably not going to talk business with them until the fourth or fifth or maybe sixth meeting. You know, if they bring it up sooner, that's fine, but uh, I'm not going to accelerate that conversation beyond a natural pace. I mean, think about it. If, uh, you know, a business relationship follows a lot of the same parallels that maybe a romantic relationship would, you know, you could take two people, they meet, they go out for a movie, they have dinner. Uh, and then, you know, a long way down the road, they may get married and start a family. But if you skip steps in that process, you go from a very natural progression to creepy in a heartbeat. (laughs) <laughs> and so why would you ever go to creepy in a business relationship either? And I know you can think of examples where you've encountered that. Everybody has, you know, someone, someone, uh, puts you, uh, connects with you on LinkedIn or Facebook. And then the next thing they do is they're soliciting you for, for some service. That's creepy. Sure. Uh, sure. Right? Well said. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny because there's, there's definitely a stigma, um, uh, a stigma around raising capital. You've got, the group of people that look at it as, oh, you know, I, I'm going to use my own money. I don't need to raise money for projects. Um, but then you have a lot of the people that are maybe stuck investing in the smaller properties that would like to um, step up to the larger ones. And and I, I think raising capital is is the, the key to that. Um, it, it, talking about kind of the, the other pieces of, uh, I think you said five core values or principles that you, you go with. Um, what are the other ones beyond uh, relationships? Well, the next one is trust. You know, most people are not going to part with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of their hard-earned savings with folks that they don't trust. Now, what is trust? It's not just am I dealing with an honest person. You actually have to have alignment of intention. If you're not – if your intentions are not aligned, it's going to be very difficult to establish that trust. But more deeply, trust is a psychological contract that has a lot of layers to it. It, It's questions like – 
can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you with, uh, with my money? Can I trust you when there's a problem? You know, can I, can I trust you to keep small commitments and on and on and on? And if any one of those are missing, then it actually doesn't work. So it's really understanding that deeper psychological contract. Now, when that trust is present, you definitely are going to be able to move much faster. People will make decisions more quickly. If the trust isn't there, then they'll be asking questions like, well, you know, I maybe need a few more weeks to do due diligence. There's a clue that the trust may not be there. So really trust is at the foundation of this. It's not just relationship, but it's at that deeper level. So that's number two. Okay. Number three is show me your track record. Show me that you know how to be successful. Show me that you have a track record of making making people money and more importantly, not losing people money. And if you have, what did you learn from it and what happened and how did you handle it? So it's, uh, it's you know, really understanding, um, you know, someone's track record. Now, you might be asking how if I'm just getting started, how can I raise money if I don't have a track record? How can I gain a track record if I can't raise any money? Well, it's not quite like that. If you're if you're lacking a track record, maybe go work with somebody for a period of time who has a tremendous amount of credibility. It doesn't have to be for years. It could be six months, a year, two years, where you can earn that reputation because you can borrow some of their credibility and you've legitimately earned it. Uh, and then and then, uh, you know, for example, if you if you went to work for six months or a year in, in, in the MC companies, this is um, uh, Ken McElroy's business. Um, Ken owns 10,000 doors and he's Robert Kiyosaki's uh, real estate guy. Uh, you can't ask for much better credibility than that. That would position you really well. You know, you say, well, I, you know, spent a period of time working in the MC companies and you know, they're, they're top of their game and here's what I've learned and, you know, here's what I contributed and uh, I believe that I'm well positioned to continue to do this on my own. And that's a very credible story. That's a very good point. And so leveraging uh, the skill sets and, and experience from another party and, um, you know, obviously you got to provide value to, to that other um, person with more experience, um, you know, in order for them to, to, to give you the opportunity. Correct. And so, Correct. so we've got trust, we've got track record, uh, relationships, um, and then what what goes on from there? So number four, you've got to have a compelling opportunity. Now, you know, the number of times I've heard somebody say, boy, I had a great deal. I just couldn't get it funded. Well, there's a clue in that. Now, in my experience, any good deal will get done. Now, it's a question of who's going to do it. Is it you or me or the next guy? But good deals generally get done. If if someone is having trouble finding the money, it's either it wasn't as compelling as they thought they were uh, or as compelling as they thought it was, or maybe they're missing some of the other elements, or maybe they're looking for money in the wrong places. But if if there really is a compelling opportunity – and and it gets matched up with the right money, the the deal will get done. You know, you know everybody's heard that there's, you know, bill, billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines. Well, there really is. In my experience, I, I get solicited for investment all the time. People are offering me money to put into projects. In fact, it happened to me last night. 
I got an email from someone who I hadn't worked with in four years, I think, and saying, oh, I've got some money I want to put to work now. Uh, what have you got? Um, it, it just, it, this is a regular, regular occurrence for me. And uh, so I'm not actively out there soliciting for funds. Um, you know, p- people know that I have a reputation of doing uh, good quality projects. And, um, and, and I don't do projects with thin margins. Um, you know, the number of people that I see out there doing projects for 10, 15 percent profit margins, I think they're nuts. You can have one mistake and now all of a sudden you're, um, you know, you're, you're treading water and two mistakes and you're now underwater. Uh, I don't want any part of that. I always do projects that as a minimum have, you know, generate 25, 30 percent net profit margin, um, you know, it, within a very, very short time period. Uh, on an now, annual basis or, or what are you using? Yes. For, okay. Well, on the project itself. So on the, on the core project. So let's say if I'm doing a new construction project that is, uh, let's say just to pick numbers out of the air, let's say that project is going to be valued at a million dollars when it's completed. I want my total investment in that project to be no more than 700,000 so that I'm generating 300,000 worth of value at the inception there's my 30%. Now, if it's a buy and hold, I still want to cap my investment at 700,000, but I want the building to appraise for a million. So now I have the opportunity to refinance the project, go back to a lender, say, let's refinance at 70% loan to value, recover 100% of my invested cash. And now I'm holding the proverbial no money down deal with 30% equity, but no actual cash tied up in the project. Okay. Okay. Understood. And on, um, just out of curiosity too, on these, uh, um, on these development deals, uh, are the, is the financing for these development deals quite a bit different from the financing you'd be getting for, uh, you know, a buy and hold? Um, are you guys using short-term debt to buy these and then refinancing or how are you structuring your financing on the development side? We're typically using bank financing, um, and these are combination loan packages with a construction loan that's typically on an 18-month to two-year term, typically interest only. And then at the end of the construction phase, once you have the certi- certificate of occupancy, it converts to permanent financing, and it, you know it's an amortized loan at that point. Typically done with the same lender. Sometimes it's done with two different lenders. Uh, and typically between the construction loan and the permanent loan, there is not a prepayment penalty. So uh, so if you want to shop the loan to somebody else and get it funded, uh, maybe, maybe at a higher loan-to-value ratio, you often have the opportunity to do that. Okay. Okay. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, I, I guess a question that I, I hear quite often um, from people that are uh, breaking into raising capital is is the structure uh, as far as how you set up these partnerships. How do you usually structure, you know, the profit split, the equity split? Um, you know, is there a waterfall model at the end or, or how do you usually do your deals? I don't know that there's necessarily a one size fits all. It really depends a little bit on the scope and the size of the project. Um, but generally, you know, the, the boots on the ground team that are, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting, obviously are going to have a significant carried interest in the project. Uh, the the equity or the capital that's coming in is also going to get an equity position. 
Uh, and then, you know, myself as kind of the overall investment manager, I get an equity position as well, uh, a carried interest. In some cases, I put in some of my own capital as well. So I appear in multiple places. I appear as an investor as well as uh, as a project sponsor. And, um, you know, depending on the size of the project, um, you know, that could be 50-50 between the money and the project. It could be um, at the low end, you know, sometimes even – 10 to 20% for the capital uh, and, and 80% for the principals or, or vice versa. Uh, it, it just depends on the project and, uh, you know, the apportionment of value contribution to the success of the project. And I guess that kind of ties into a, a deal that actually works. If the deal's too thin, there's not enough room for um, you to be able to have your, your equity split for, for doing all the work that you're doing. Correct. And and that's another reason why I don't like thin deals. You know, when you're trying to uh, slice up a pie in too many slices and there's just not enough to go around, then uh, it gets difficult to get the project pulled together. But if you have a high margin project, uh, you can actually give a fairly modest ownership stake in the project for to, uh, to the investor and they still have a very healthy uh, rate of return on their investment. And is there a, uh, as far as what the niche you're working in, is there a, a minimum deal size you work with and, and what's kind of the, I guess, the, the cookie cutter nominal deal size that you guys are doing as far as a minimum or a maximum number that you'll look at um, when, when overviewing projects? These days, I mean, when we started, we, we started out, you know, even rehabbing single family homes uh, and then graduated from there to building multi-unit residential. Today, uh, you know, we don't we don't do any rehabs, um, only focus on um, really new construction, uh, larger projects. So the smallest we'll do right now is probably a nine or 10 unit building. Uh, we've got a number of those under construction right now. Uh, and that's based on how much land we can assemble. We've got some larger projects as well, um, all the way up to a 240-unit project uh, and kind of everything in between. And do you see it, uh, I, I guess from a curiosity standpoint, again, do you see it easier or harder dealing with those smaller properties versus, I mean, is there a difference between doing a nine-unit development and a 240-unit development? The differences are, um, you know, with a nine unit, it's typically infill. So a lot of the municipal services are there. You're dealing with existing zoning. With uh, with a larger multi-unit project, you know, a 240 unit project, you're going to be getting a site plan. Uh, you're going to getting, you know, getting rezoned, going through site plan approval, dealing with um, uh, politicians, uh, p- potentially community opposition, things like that. So you know, it's a it's a different. Uh, proposition at the at the front end of the project and the front end of, of a larger project is going to be much more time consuming uh, and is going to maybe be even a little bit more risk in the sense that before you even do the capital raise uh, before you've even secured the land you can actually spend a lot of money uh, with consultants and so on just to get to the point where you have something to uh, present to investors Whereas with a smaller project like, you know, a nine or 10 unit building, you know, we, in a, in a few days we can put together that executive summary and, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit simpler. Yeah. And, and I think maybe the risk factor on the bigger deals too, it, it at least shows, uh, it's, it's in my mind, I could see it being almost easier to raise capital because you've put so much skin into the game, um, 
up front before even presenting it to the investors? What we try and do when we're dealing with larger projects is break them down into phases that, you know, um, stand on their own merits. Each phase um, makes sense financially on its own. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, we're working on a larger project right now where the land itself, we're buying at a discount to the market. Um, you know, we're getting it rezoned prior to closing. So by the by the day we actually close on the land, we would have created a tremendous amount of value just on the land deal alone because we go from land that was raw land not entitled to land that is now zoned and approved. So there's value creation at, at that level. Um, but we still bought it as if it was raw land. And uh, so now the land deal by itself, even if we don't build the apartment complex, the land deal makes sense because we can now sell, sell – we have an extra exit strategy. We could sell that entitled land to another developer if we want to. That creates a tremendous amount of safety for the investor that's coming in early on because they don't know that we're going to qualify necessarily you know, for $25, $30 million of construction debt financing. Uh, until that's done, they are assuming a bit more risk, and we can mitigate that risk by by making sure that the first phase, in this case the land phase, stands on its own merits. Uh, so breaking the project down into bite-sized chunks that are uh, standalone, that are safe, um, and uh, you know that that makes a big difference. Okay, that makes sense. And and I guess um, you know you starting in the uh, it, it, as far as your development company is concerned. Um, have you guys primarily been developing in, uh, the East coast from what I've seen and, and how, how much have you guys developed so far since your, your company started? So we generally put together partnerships in each local geography. You know, we've done some redevelopment in Chicago, um, you know, dating back six, seven years. We've done some redevelopment and new construction in, in Philadelphia. And each of these are separate uh, separate partnerships. We create special purpose entities for each project. The lenders kind of insist on that and the investors kind of insist on that because they want the projects to be firewalled from each other. You know, if there was a problem on one project, you wouldn't want it to cascade onto another uh, and same thing in Louisiana. So these are all special purpose entities that are created for each separate project. That's typically the structure. And you're uh, you're partnering with local boots on the ground guys to kind of help since uh, you know being out of state or out of country. Is that correct? The, the 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 game plan there. Exactly. Exactly. Now, just because I'm out of out of town, out of country, doesn't mean that I'm out of mind. I'm you know literally on the phone with these folks on a daily basis, uh, very hands-on involved in uh, in the project management, reviewing things, uh, making sure that the plans have integrity, asking difficult questions, uh, making connections, uh, doing a lot of the uh, project management uh, to make sure that things are done correctly, uh, even though it's from a distance. Okay. Okay, great. The last one is, is alignment. So this is the notion – that you really need that perfect fit. We touched on it at the beginning, but you need that perfect fit between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And it breaks down into a series of more detailed questions. For example, what is the size of the investment? 
Um, if you're, you know, what is the term of the investment? How long is the money going to be tied up for? What's the rate of return? What's the tax consequence? What's the control structure? Uh, and so on. Uh, what's the risk? What's the security? Uh, so when, you know, go through all of those types of questions and you need a pretty much a perfect fit on all of those questions in order for that uh, fit to exist between the money and the project. And if you don't have that fit, don't force it because it won't work. Do you have any, uh, I guess, stories of when you've tried to force it or, or times when you've pushed people away because, you know, you preventatively you could see that it wouldn't work out in the future or a good example Absol of that, I guess? Absolutely. I've got, I've got, I can give you several examples. I'll give you two. So the first one um, was a gentleman who was kind of dying to invest with me uh, and uh so then I asked him, you know, how much money are you looking to put to work? And he said $20,000. And I said, hmm, I don't – what am I going to do with twenty grand? I, I don't know. Like I have nothing that small. Yeah. So eventually we found uh, a parcel of land. It was a very small lot that we were acquiring for twenty grand as part of a larger land assembly. And uh, we said, we'll put you in first lien position. We'll give you a mortgage on that property. We'll give you a rate of interest. Um, and I can't remember it was either a nine or 12 month note, something like that. And, uh, uh, but this guy, number one, he, I don't think he had much more than 20 grand. So it was his last 20 grand and he was the most nervous investor ever. He was constantly calling with questions and, uh, not that I mind questions. I don't mind questions. It was really the, the, the nervousness with which he approached it. And then about six months in, he said, you know what, my family's asked me to buy a property in South Asia with that money. You can have my money back. And I'm going, <laughs> great. How am I going to go now and raise 20 grand? Like nobody puts 20 grand to work. That's too small. <laughs> it's not worth the paperwork. Um, so anyway, you know, within about 30 days, we managed to find capital to replace his money and uh, we gave him his money back. But it taught me a lesson, which was, you know, just because somebody – says they want to invest with you doesn't mean it's the right fit. And, uh, and I need to, you know, I need to take charge of that and say, no, um, sometimes it's tempting to take the money. And I have a more recent example where, you know, um, uh, someone who I've known for 25 years put funds in a project and, um, uh, you know, he wants to be part of the project. And in this particular instance, uh, I made the decision. I went back to him actually earlier this week and said, you know what, I'm going to give you your money back because the risk profile on the project has changed and I know your goals and objectives and I'm not comfortable. You know, if we were going into the project today, uh, knowing what we know today, this would not be the right investment for you. So I want to find replacement capital that has a different set of goals and give you your money back because I, I – you know, the risk profile on the project has changed and it's not the right investment for you. Yeah. And he was simultaneously disappointed and appreciative uh, because I was looking out for their interest. So as a, you know, as someone who's raising capital, you've got a fiduciary responsibility and to make sure that you're protecting your investors capital and making sure that it's uh, it's the right match between their goals and yours. I think that links back into not only trust, but relationships, you know, being completely transparent and honest um, and making sure the goals are aligned. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so um, I guess for, for if people want to, 
do you have a, a site where you post your your projects that you're raising capital on, or do you have any that you're currently um, in need of funding, or um, how do you you know uh, I guess release these to your investors? So uh, you know under under US SEC rules, uh, it's it's really against the law to solicit for investment, and so we don't. Um, the only circumstance where we would is if we were doing um, a regulation D 506 C fund uh, where you are permitted to solicit for investment under regulation D 506 C, but 506 B you are not. So, you know, we have to obviously comply with securities regulations, both at the federal and the state level. Um, and uh, so solicitation is never part of, never part of the equation. Um, and uh, at least it hasn't been for us uh, so far. We may do a, a 506C in the future, but so far we haven't. Okay. So it's, uh, I guess, on a basis of you have your book of investors that you've you know, aligned with certain investment products. And when you have something that fits those needs, you reach out to them directly. Yeah. And it, I don't know that we necessarily reach out to them. You know, we, you know, we, um, you know, let people know about some of the things that we are contemplating that we're working on. Uh, and then often people will approach us and say, hmm, that sounds interesting. Again, we're not soliciting for investment. Uh, you know, we often communicate a bit of excitement about some of the things that are uh, in our pipeline. Um, but we're never asking for money. We're never soliciting. And we simply offer people the opportunity if they want to come in to collaborate with us on a project. Um, and uh, And we just go from there. Okay. Okay, great. Um, well, Thomas, did you have any other questions for Victor before we let him go? Well, thank you for all the knowledge that you've, that you've passed on here. Um, I'm, I know our listeners will appreciate it as, uh, as well as I have, I guess the, the only question that I would have for you, or at least to kind of keep it as short as possible. <laughs> um, and this is a, 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 a question and a conversations that we've been having around the office and over the past, you know, year to two years, have you noticed in terms of like, you know, investors who are approaching you in terms of like what their goals are, both short term and long term, have you noticed that it changed or have you noticed like a, a change in the type of investor who's approaching you now almost as a as kind of a way to gauge the market or where we're at in the current market cycle? I think it's very difficult to generalize. I, you know, for us, I would say in many cases, our goals have changed. You know, when you are starting out the, and you don't have a lot of uh, capital of your own, the cheapest thing to do is give up a, a, an equity share. Um, when you have more capital at your disposal and uh, you have a strong track record, then the most expensive thing for you to give up is equity. You'd rather have a higher proportion of debt. Uh, even if uh, it means paying a, a premium rate of interest on on some of that debt. So, um, you know, it really comes down to, again, matching the goals for the money and um, and the goals for the project. Um, you know, larger projects are obviously going after a different type of investor. Um, you know, sometimes um, sometimes when we're looking to put money into a project in, in, in the U.S., there's, of course, the 1031 uh, capital gains shelter uh, and uh, – uh, those those investors are looking to solve a problem. They if they're looking to shelter their monies uh, within Section 1031, they've got 45 days to identify a replacement property from the day that they sell 
their previous property in the 180 days to close. It's a relatively short time period. I often see people making a choice between, well, do I pay the tax or do I buy something even if it's not what I would really want to buy simply so I don't have to pay the tax. And I see people making substandard investments simply to avoid paying tax. Um, I, I would rather people don't do that. Um, you know, a, a bad investment, even w even with a good tax consequence, is still a bad investment. So, you know, we, uh, w you know, w without any arrogance, you know, we, we only do good projects. And so I think we help people solve a problem in that respect. Uh, if they have, uh, um, you know, if, if they have monies that they're looking to put to work, uh, we, we can sometimes help them with that. And uh, so I, I guess on that account and understanding the 1031 exchange laws, um, do you uh, when when you guys sell a property with that with that, you know, limited partnership that owns it or um, specific entity, that whole entity has to exchange together. Do you guys usually do exchanges out of your projects or do you pay the capital gains tax? It depends. We we haven't sold a ton of uh, a ton of stuff. We typically tend to buy and hold, um, or buy buy build and hold uh, for the for the long term. So we haven't sold very much. Um, and uh, if we do, in, historically, we've taken a bit of profit um, and then uh, use that to you know invest in other projects. Um, you know, so far I think we've elected to pay the tax. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like asking that question because especially right now in the, this point in the cycle, um, we definitely see a lot of people making, uh, I guess, rash, rash investment decisions um, because, you know, they've got the gun to the head and they're, they're on the clock and they got to find something before the end of their 45 days. Um, right. So it's always interesting to hear people's take on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Victor, I, I really do appreciate it again. Um, and I hope we can have you on again sometime in the near future. And is there a, a place people can go to, uh, I guess, put, purchase the book for Magnetic Capital and also maybe find more, more about you and your, your company? Absolutely. Uh, so they can buy the book uh, from uh, my website directly at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. And if they order it from the website, they'll get an autographed copy. If they want it a little bit faster. Uh, but not autographed. They can order it from Amazon, and it's also available uh, in electronic form on Kindle. Okay. Um, and uh, if they have any questions, I'm happy to interact with your listeners directly. They can reach out to me at victor at victorjm.com. Okay, great. Well, Victor, thank you again, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Thank you. Same to you. All right, thanks. Thanks.